Drive time on 91.3. Always on the cutting edge. Weekly World Economic Report on Drive Time. Yes, indeed, a weekly World Economic Report. But of course, don't forget, 8 o'clock tonight on Voice of the Cape, a live panel discussion on the science of vaccines. A live panel discussion, 8 p.m. tonight on Voice of the Cape, um, the science of vaccines. But uh, in this week, world's uh, in this week's World Economic Report, we're not going to be looking at vaccines. We're looking at Deloitte Tush agreeing to pay out 1.3 billion rands in compensation to Steinhoff claimants. New World Trade Organization Chief Ngozi Nkonjo Iwela promises reform. And Mideast tensions drive oil to a 13-month high. Online, as always, senior researcher, University of Pretoria, Dr. Jason Misyoka. Of course, Twitter handle, at Jason Misyoka. Dr. Misyoka, welcome. Thank you so much, Shafiq, for having me. And hello to your listeners. The Steinhoff deal, Deloitte uh, agreeing to pay out 1.3 1.3 billion rand compensation to claimants against Steinhoff. I'm sure it's a fraction of what they should be getting. And it's the first time we've seen anything encouraging coming out of the massive economic disaster that Steinhoff is. So, Deloitte, they have claimed that uh, this is not an admission of guilt, but given what we now know, actually, the fact that they were involved in signing of inflated asset values for Steinhoff, and there were, you know, third-party dubious transactions that they also signed off. So that that is known as a fact. And the issue was, what role did they play in the um, inside trading of Steinhoff that ended up to you know, investors losing uh, over 200 billion, the largest corporate fraud in history. So Deloitte, in, in, in my perspective, they've come to, uh, there have been inside negotiations, of course, with um, uh, Steinhoff. And as much as they are claiming it's not an admission of guilt, I think they do admit that they made uh, serious professional fraud or serious professional errors that led to, or at least contributed to, the fallout that happened at uh, Steinhoff. So I think the 1.3 billion that they have accepted to pay, um, it will go some uh, length in trying to pay off the shareholders who lost a lot of money there. And of course, we also know that the former CEO Marcus Joste, he himself was fined uh, about 150 million, um, you know, as part of him being involved in the inside trading. And all of this was really a network of executives, both from Deloitte and and, and Steinhoff, of which Steinhoff's uh, executives were led by the then CEO. So it's a it's a scandal that um, I think we are trying to see a bit of cleanup going on and payouts and so on. And unfortunately, Deloitte is um, is is party to it. I know a lot of people would have liked to have seen Marcus Euster in an orange overall, um, uh, sharing a shell with Oscar or somebody else. But uh, I mean, wh- are there any reasons why Marcus Euster, the, the sort of the brains trust behind this massive fraud, why he's still free? You know, Shafiq, uh, it, it comes down to the way these sorts of systems work. Um, because if you work for a corporate, there's a uh, there's an old cliche that talks about what 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 unit of society is the most powerful. 
Uh, there's an interesting book uh, written by Mike Ollery, and his argument is that from the 1920s onwards, uh, political parties were the most powerful units in society. Later on, uh, we see arguments made about the nation-state as the most powerful unit of society. But more modern theories suggest that the most powerful unit of society is not the nation-state, it's not the political party, but it actually cooperates. They hold the greatest power in our society today. And to respond to your question directly, uh, Marcus, he he's of course, you know, he was at least an executive of one of the successful corporates there there is in, in, in or there was in the country. And so these corporates, they are bu- bureaucratic systems that protect the executives who are involved in their scandals. So unfortunately, it's if you look at um, Cambridge Analytica, another example of a highly successful corporate in 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 in, um, in the UK, and they were involved in scandals of. Um, you know, messing up political voting and political cycles in a whole range of countries. Ultimately, the company closes down, but the executives, they are fined and they work free. So it's a system that works. It's not just uh, uh, staying off. It's, it's also Cambridge Analytica. And if you look at the Lehman Brothers in the U.S. after the uh, collapse of the global economy, which they caused, so the trend is the same. The executives walk free, they declare bankruptcy, the companies, they go under, and they are fined, but they are able to pay that fine. Uh, you and I, unfortunately, or neither is uh, Oscar Pistorius able to pay that $162 million, but um, uh, Marcus is able to pay that and walk free. That's really the way the system operates. So, in other words, the, the prospect of Marcus used to being behind bars is remote? I would say it's close to zero. Wow, uh, that certainly is going to anger a lot of creditors. But uh, on that note, uh, we're going to cross for 30 seconds of headlines. When we come back with our special guest, Dr. Jason Misiorka, we're going to be having a look at the New World Trade Organization and Middle East tensions uh, driving oil and us around the bend. Stay with us. Making headlines, memorial service for Nyanga boys suffocated by sand gets underway amid fresh commitments by government to tackle the issues. Western Cape Community Safety MEC welcomes the arrest by city officials. The health department refutes claims that South Africa will be sending AstraZeneca doses back to India. And internationally, Saudi Arabian authorities arrest a female scholar for teaching Quran at home. Those are the headlines. Catch the details at the top of the hour. And uh, welcome back. Uh, the New World Trade Organization Chief Ngozi Nkonjo Iwela promises reform. But first of all, just for the benefit of our listeners, what is the New World Trade Organization? So the World Trade Organization is the United Nations body that is responsible for coordinating trade relations and transactions and regulations across the world. Uh, There has been, it it really started as a general agreement for trade and tariffs in the late 1940s, then it transformed into the World uh, Trade Organization. And there have been ongoing debates back and forth as to how we can have fair trade around the world. Developing countries, they should have a reasonable share on the table, as are developed countries. So its role is really to coordinate fair trade across the world, given that we are in a very asymmetrical world where there are powerful players and weaker players, and you need a coordinating mechanism for cross-border trade, and that happens to be the 
uh, WTO that was set up by the United Nations. So what kind of reform could the new chief, um, it looks uh, he's from our continent, um, what sort of reform do you think he, he is actually promising? So firstly, uh, her background, um, Ngozi Okonjo, she's, uh, she's the very first African um, woman to... To lead the the UN body, and uh, she comes at a very difficult time. The WTO has lost credibility over the last few years, um, not least because of the nature of some of the bigger players like the United Nations, as we know. Uh, sorry, the United States, as we know, what uh, what what the United States under the uh, former administration under Donald Trump did. They withdrew from the WTO, and that meant that there was a lot of retrieving of funds that were going to support the running of the WTO. But the problem was not just financial. There was also a question of ideology and the fact that um, the, the, the United States and most other countries around the world, uh, Europe included, we've seen a retreat of a kinds of nationalisms where they are putting forward their nations first, as, as opposed to um, making sure that they trade reasonably with the rest of the world. That has been a, or has made an, a negative impact on the WTO in the sense that um, there needs to be uh, pulling back again away from the nationalisms that we have seen and for all these parties to come back to the table and realize that we are in this together and that we need to trade fairly and we get back on course. And I think that's going to be one of our most pressing uh, challenges she will face. Not least, by the way, Shafiq, she, she's, uh, she made her first speech. Uh, she will begin office on the 1st of March, but she has already alluded to the fact that we are seeing the, the playing out of these nationalisms in the way the, the, uh, the, the uh, COVID-19 vaccines are being rolled out, where nations, nation states or the more powerful economies are holding on to vaccines. And this is also a form of nationalism where we need to provide easy access to these vaccines. And somehow she will need to clear that up and ensure that there is cross-border vaccine uh, trade that is happening uh, without the hoarding that we are seeing. So that's going to be one of our most pressing charges, adding that, of course, to the nationalisms that we saw in the last five or so years that she will have to push back and bring everybody back to the table for uh, the agenda of fair trade. No, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I've heard reports of certain developed countries having more than six times the amount of um, COVID vaccines that they actually need, and they're not prepared to let it go. They're hanging on to it, which must be hugely frustrating to um, some of the developing nations in the world who are really scrambling. Uh, to to vaccinate the populations. Indeed, I mean countries such as Canada, they have uh, ten doses per capita per person, and uh, UK following with about six doses per person. Um, so, and in Canada, if you recall, numbers are really low. So, to have ten doses per person, it really is. Uh, it's, it's, it's unfair for the rest of the African countries, countries such as Zimbabwe and, as we know, in South Africa now. Um, and other countries in Africa, they have not even received the first consignment. Uh, in South Africa, we have, although we have our own problems in terms of expiring AstraZeneca uh, uh, vaccine and so on. But in Zimbabwe, they are only receiving their consignment now, and most other countries 
So it's it's unfair, and that's one of the challenges that we will have to address. The WTO will have to get into that in, in, in terms of access of uh, these vaccines. She did predict that uh, if we are not careful, we are going to lose over nine trillion U.S. dollars uh, of worth of um, uh, you know economic share if if the access to the vaccines is not shared equitably with uh, developing countries. And that brand is going to be shared mostly by these developing countries. So she has her work clearly cut out when she comes to power in just under two weeks. And uh, final one, Mideast tensions, oil going up and up and up. Uh, and no, I don't think it's just tensions. It seems as if as we come out of the lockdowns, people want more oil. There's a mix of factors that are at play. The first is the fact that uh, there's a Saudi-led coalition that's fighting in Yemen, and you know they've they've had tensions now, um, as we know, with uh, with uh, with uh, Iran. And with that, what's going on is that it has affected the production of the Saudis' uh, oil. There were efforts to um, send an explosive device to. Uh, to Saudi Arabia, and, and so there has been a bit of impact on that. But there are several other factors at play, and one of it, very interestingly, and it couldn't have come at a worse time, is the fact that the U.S., which has also become a major supplier, the weather in the production basin has gone extremely low to minus six, between minus six and minus 22 degrees Celsius. Therefore, production is very difficult around this area, and that's in the, around the Texas basin where they produce oil. So that's another factor. And thirdly, in Norway, there are looming strikes. And now Norway does produce uh, approximately a third of the global output of oil. There are potential strikes that are looming, and that's going to affect uh, oil production in a significant way, oil supply. So all of these factors, if you consider them plus the rising demand, then we have um, a shrinking supply on one side and a rising demand on the other side. And what this does is that it pushes prices really high. And we've already seen so far that um, the Brent crude oil is sitting at about 63 uh, U.S. dollars uh, per barrel. So it's, 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 it's going up, and if situations or conditions on the ground, um, they don't change, we are going to see more shrinking supply and increasing demand, and the prices will just keep going up higher. Dr. Jason Masioka, Senior Researcher, University of Pretoria. As always, uh, thanks for joining us for the Weekly World Economic Report. Thank you so much for having me, Shafiq. Weekly World Economic Report on DriveTime.